Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 103, There Are Always Possibilities. Yep, once again it's time for some hypothetical what-ifs from the Cheap Astronomy Brains Trust. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we might not have all the answers, but at least we know what questions don't have answers. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, How much antimatter is there, and will it eventually all annihilate? Antimatter is generally found in subatomic form. So there's antiprotons and antielectrons, which can occasionally come together to form an antihydrogen atom. But that's about it. An anti-helium nucleus has been created in a laboratory, but neither it nor any other more complex antinuclei have been observed in nature. Based on what we can see through telescopes, detect in cosmic rays, and directly observe on Earth, we think it's unlikely that antimatter exceeds 1% of the total matter plus antimatter contents of the universe. An antiparticle is essentially the same as a particle, except it has the opposite charge. So, for example, an electron has a negative charge, and its antiparticle, a positron, has a positive charge. And if a particle and its antiparticle interact, they annihilate each other. This is why you don't find a lot of antimatter in our matter-dominated universe. Because as soon as an antimatter particle meets its particle counterpart, both disappear in a flash of gamma rays. As to the question of whether all antimatter will eventually be annihilated out of existence, we can provide a confident no, at least not before the heat death of the whole universe. Fresh antimatter particles are being created all the time. Many high-energy events, for example supernovae and high-energy particle collisions, like a cosmic ray hitting our atmosphere, all create particle-antiparticle pairs. It's also thought that the polar jets that shoot out of accreting black holes and many neutron stars are largely streams of particles and antiparticles. And it's thought that all these natural phenomena produce particles and antiparticles in equal numbers which is what we also find close up in particle collider experiments. On the basis of these findings, a largely unfounded assumption has developed where people assume the Big Bang should have produced particles and antiparticles in equal numbers. We say this is unfounded since no one really has a clue what happened at the time of the Big Bang. We think that in a few fractions of an instant, the initial hot soup of fundamental particles was already matter-dominated, and it never looked back from there. Although even that proposed hot soup of fundamental particles is itself just a hypothesis. We do have observational evidence about the early universe coming from the cosmic microwave background, and we can wind the clock further back from there on theoretical grounds, 
But there is a point beyond which the best thing to do is just shrug. So where people say that the matter-antimatter imbalance in the universe is one of the great unsolved problems of physics, we might as well just say that whatever happened immediately after the Big Bang is one of the great unsolved problems of physics. Which, of course, it is. The matter-antimatter imbalance in our universe could just be a coin toss type of thing. Once either type of fundamental particle gains the slightest of edges, that's pretty much it. It's speculated that the initial matter dominance of the universe may only have been one extra part per 5 billion, but that means that 5 billion matter particles annihilate when they contact 5 billion antiparticles, so only that one extra matter particle remains then scale that up into billions of trillions, and you'll get a matter-dominated universe. So, some speculate that it could just as well have gone the other way, so that we'd instead live in a universe where the little things that whiz around atomic nuclei are positrons. However, others argue that there could be some special feature of matter, which means it will always dominate over antimatter. And apparently there is some hint of what could be evidence of this arising from a few particle accelerator experiments. But that conclusion is still being hotly debated. So again, at least at this point in history, the best thing to do is shrug. Or go off and do a PhD in quantum mechanics so that you can at least give a highly educated shrug. This is the middle bit. As always, cheap astronomy is concerned that we may one day bump into an expensive astronomy podcast, which will see us both evaporate in a puff of logic. But until then, let's consider another hypothetical. Dear cheap astronomy, how fast could we get to Alpha Centauri with current technologies? If we calculate the trip duration, based on speeds achievable with current technology, a mission to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system to ours, would take over 6,000 years. But even that is wildly optimistic when you consider the mass that you'd need to accelerate up to those speeds. If you want to fly humans to Alpha Centauri, you would need to fly them with not only sufficient fuel and propellant, but also sufficient life support, including thousands of years' worth of food and water, and all the various facilities needed to maintain a generational starship. If we make the more realistic assumption that you would just fly a robotic mission, you'd still need to fly a small nuclear reactor to maintain electrical power while you are between stars, Nonetheless, a fully robotic mission is a tiny bit more plausible. And fortunately, there are some emerging technologies that will enable us to get to Alpha Centauri a lot faster than 6,000 years. Higher specific impulse nuclear thermal propulsion engines have at least been ground tested where a nuclear fission reactor produces a heat source through which you funnel hydrogen gas, thereby heating and expanding that gas so it blasts out at very high speed from a rocket nozzle. 
But when we say a lot faster, we're just saying that nuclear thermal propulsion might get you to Alpha Centauri in just 1,000 rather than 6,000 years. So again, you probably want to forget about flying people. The best you can do is fly robots, which may just mean the spacecraft itself, along with a few detachable probes that could explore the system and its exoplanets in more detail. But even with a 1,000-year mission, by the time it gets there, it may be sending back data which will seem like Bronze Age technology to its recipients. Who knows how far our remote sensing technologies may advance in the next 1,000 years. We might have kilometres-wide space telescopes mapping out the continents on exoplanet Proxima Centauri b, as well as collecting detailed spectroscopic analyses of both its atmosphere and its surface rocks, assuming spectroscopy won't itself have become a laughably primitive technology by then. A better approach to this whole mission might be to load up the spacecraft with lots of raw materials and 3D printers, so its technology can evolve in sync with earthbound technology. The first 900 years of the mission might just involve upgrading the 3D printers into better 3D printers, or even full-on replicators, so that the last 100 years of the trip could be spent actually building equipment for the mission. But right now, it's unlikely we would take the risk that the current generation of 3D printers, plus further intellectual input from Earth, would be a sufficient foundation for an evolving technology mission. And by the time we did develop the proper basis for an evolving technology mission, who knows what other sorts of technology we might have also developed, which could either shorten the mission or make it unnecessary. So perhaps the only justifiable option for a mission to Alpha Centauri is one where we can achieve velocities of at least 10% the speed of light, so that we can get there in under 50 years. That may still mean the mission arrives with what everyone will consider old technology, but at least it won't be Bronze Age technology. Of course, there is a faint chance that this podcast, along with a whole bunch of other genuine experts, have got it all wrong and somehow we will be able to travel nearly as fast as light and get there in under five years. But it's pretty hard to see how that can be feasible without some stupendous and currently unimaginable fuel source, as well as some incredibly robust collision shielding that will protect the ship when it hits dust grains while travelling at hundreds of thousands of kilometres per second. Breakthrough Starshot proposes a laser-sail propelled nanoprobe that's accelerated up to 25% the speed of light by a kilometre-wide array of lasers. The probe won't be able to manoeuvre at all, so it would need to stay on a perfectly straight line and not collide with any dust grains for 4.3 light-years, after which it could manage a couple of quick photos as it screams through the system at 25% the speed of light, since it can't slow down either. And as for faster-than-light travel, nah, it's not even worth entertaining the idea.
This is the end bit. So, there you go. The idea of popping over to another star system and still getting home in time for tea remains the topic of long-running TV franchises and is unlikely to ever really happen. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to pop over for a cup of tea, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll put the kettle on for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.